Today's episode comes to you in partnership with Rotacloud, the people management platform for shift-based teams. Rotacloud lets managers create and share rotas, record attendance and manage annual leave, all from a single web-based app. It also makes work simple for your team, allowing them to check their rotas, request holiday and even pick up extra shifts straight from their phones. Try Rotacloud's time-saving tools today by heading to rotacloud.com forward slash fill. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Adele Oxbury, CEO of Umbrella Training and Employment Solutions and Mighty Apprenticeships Champion. Coming up on today's show... Adele makes her play for the most random line of the show... The stuff I know about what Diet Coke can do to a toilet that you don't know... Phil reveals a huge hang-up... I don't want to talk to the British public, thanks very much. And Adele demonstrates the ingenuity that comes out of boredom. Now at the top of the stairs, now looking down at these two crazy receptionists <laughs> running around chasing dust with a pair of scissors. All that and so much more as we chat through Adele's superb story and journey so far. There's a lot to love about Adele's journey as we learn the power of graft and finding some early purpose. She's an almighty champion of apprenticeships and there's some learning in here around that too. A huge thank you to Adele for giving up her time. One final thing before we get into it, please don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast app of choice and if you can, leave us a quick review. It all helps to keep the show moving forward. Enjoy. And a huge hospitality meets welcome to Adele Oxbury. Hello Adele. Hello Phil, how are you? I'm alright, how are you? Really good thanks, really really good. Thank you, thank you for having me on. My absolute pleasure. I mean, what for anybody who's just tuning into this now, you, what you won't realise is, is that Adele and I have been gassing for the last half an hour before we turned the microphone on. But there we are. I hope that's uh, an indication of, as to how chatty we're going to be throughout uh, going through your journey. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. So, yeah, really excited about it and uh, really honoured to have been asked. So thank you. Bless you. No, no, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, just for the uninitiated, uh, who are you and what do you do? So I am Adele Oxbury. I am the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Umbrella Training and we're an apprenticeship and training provider for the hospitality and catering sector. So that's it in a nutshell. Fantastic. And I, and I owe a big shout out again to Joe Harley who connected us. Joe, I think, is effectively my booking agent now. She's she's a legend, is Joe? Absolutely, yeah. We work very closely with uh, her and Jane, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where their new adventures take them as well. Yeah, absolutely, great stuff. Well, I'd, let's just get to it then. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of your career. How did you get involved with hospitality in the first place? Oh gosh, we go back to when I was 14. I feel I'm opening a big book here, Phil. So. Um, <laughs> I'll condense it. I'll condense it. So Everybody start, get comfortable. Yeah, so get the tea on or get the wine out, whichever you prefer. So um started working at the age of 14, actually, uh, like many people in hospitality and from the 80s as well. I had a really strict Irish mother who basically said I had to earn my keep, not for any other reason, but because I was a very demanding teenager who wanted the Nikes and not, not the Tesco uh, plimsolls. Yep. So very, very strict. Um, and she was really fortunately for me and uh, such a great privilege for me that she was the head housekeeper at the Fleming's Hotel in Mayfair. 
And um, so she got me in working weekends, cleaning rooms and um, just doing all bits and bobs for her, as well as clearing out the linen room and doing all kinds of basic things during the weekends. But I loved earning money so much that I said to her that, oh, my goodness, I want to come in, you know, on half term, summer holidays. I also want to start working evenings. And it was such an amazing experience. I mean, this was back in the early 80s and I was earning a pound a room fill. And so I was earning 30 pounds a weekend, which for a 14 year old was was a lot of money. Oh, you made it. Times. I literally was, you know, Bill Gates. Um, (laughs) I just knew that this was a route for me. But at the same time, her passion for hospitality was rubbing off on me. I could understand the energy and why she why she was so dedicated and 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 she being my mother. So I just really thrived in it. And um, she kept me busy, that's for sure, because also I'd go home and I would also have to do the, you know, the cleaning of the house with her. And um, it kind of taught me some lifelong skills, actually, you know, being organised and being tidy in particular. So it was a great experience. And it was so much so that I'd got this passion for the sector that by the time I was 16, I joined Westminster Kingsway College and it was called Westminster College then. It wasn't called Westminster Kingsway. And uh, I was at the Battersea campus, which no longer exists. Uh, I had the most amazing experience there, though. And I studied my city and guild 708 and 709, which is hotel reception and housekeeping. Right. So, again, a really great experience. Learned so much from the tutors there and uh, made some really great friends, too, which are still in my life from from that experience at college. Do you know what I'd love about that is the the fact that you know everybody talks about the fact that the this industry uh, is low paid and all of that. Here's you at your ripe old age of fourteen to sixteen getting into it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> No, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? But I suppose it's how you're taught about the value of money. And, you know, that's my mother really taught me that the value of money comes from working hard. And I we used to get pocket money. So a pound a room was a lot. I used to get 10 pence. And that used to buy me 10 fruit salads from the sweet shop in a paper bag. So having a pound a room and doing 15 rooms, and then for my mother then to come and sneak three or four more on my trolley and run away so as I didn't complain about it, yeah. uh, was just awesome. So some weekends I'd be only 36 pound a weekend. And, you know, and I became a really solid room attendant for her, you know, because I was reliable, I was fast, I didn't muck about, I just got into the rooms, cleaned them, and I had great trainers, though I had uh, a lady called Claire, who was actually originally from the Windrush community, and um, she was my mentor and my trainer, so she was awesome, and it was because of the energy of the people around me that I just wanted to stay. I just need, I knew I had to stay in hospitality. I knew this was my path in life. By the time, so when I got gone to college, I'd done this course and come out there. By the time I was 18, Phil, I was a fully qualified housekeeper in the five-star right. luxury market. Yeah. And um, that was because of the open door that my mother gave me. And yes, there's privilege there. I understand that. But it was something I worked hard for. And 
it was something I loved and breathed and enjoyed and it was something I knew hospitality I knew would be where I would go and when I used to say to my uh, friends at school I went to an all-girls school Catholic school and I said I'm going to be a housekeeper one day I'm actually going to be like my mum they couldn't see why I wanted to be that person Mm. they were just oh that's terrible it's cleaning toilets and I used to go but you have so much fun it's not just about cleaning toilets there's science behind cleaning there's a science there's stuff I know about what diet coke can do to a toilet that you don't know so and you're drinking (laughs) that stuff and put it inside your gut so you know so there was so much stuff that I was learning that is not taught at school and certainly life skills communication skills all of those things were so important that I realised as I've gotten older but at the time going through that experience and being with my school friends and my college friends all of them said they want we did the city and girls 708 and 709 mainly the girls were on there to do reception I was there to do housekeeping so I'd be the girl not turning up with the ma- with no makeup I turn up with flat shoes because I'd turn up as the housekeeper yeah. whereas the, my other my peers in my group would turn up with lots of makeup the hair all done looking like fashion models and there'd be Adele in the corner um the bland plain Jane but I was very proud of what I was doing and I knew I was determined and it didn't need a, a face of makeup to make me determined. Well, and, and let's be frank here. You know, actually being a, a skilled housekeeper is one of the, the most skilled jobs you could ever hope to find. And I always remember, I will come back to this and uh, Joe will kill me for this, Joe, uh, Joanne Taylor-Stagg at the Athenaeum yeah. talked about the fact that when we all came back out of COVID again and, and she was chipping in, doing housekeeping and stuff because you kind of had to uh, at that point and everybody was just excited to get her out of the department because you know with the best will in the world that's not the general manager's job and you know I think people take it for granted a lot that um, it just happens it's just one of those things but to do things with meticulous attention to detail to keep things clean to do it quickly is all you know it's it's up there as one of the, the the most skilled jobs in the world. I completely agree with you. It gives you the transferable skills in every aspect of your life. And if we come back to what hospitality really is, so you have, for example, uh, that we had a, I had a learning consultant join us a few years ago. Um, he's gone on to be a teacher, actually. And when he joined us, I said, what's hospitality to you? And he said, hospitality to me is... He said, I learned it from a young age because when your uncle and aunts come round to your house, you change the bed, you put the fresh linen on, you hoover the house, you get the food in the oven, you lay the table, you get your best, best crockery out, you get your best cutlery out, you shine it, you polish the glasses. And he said to me, that was when I knew hospitality was for me. He said, but the part that I enjoyed the most was the cleaning of the house was seeing parts of the house that my mum had to clean, but because we were in this as a team and cleaning it, getting it shiny and smelling awesome for our family to come and enjoy, showed the house was clean. That was more important than cooking good food. Mm. Um, So, And that really stuck with me because every time I used to clean a room, I used to make sure it smelled amazing. And it, to me, that was the telling point the visuals, of course, the dust behind the, behind the furniture, in the drawers, all those kind of things. But the smell of it, as soon as you you know when you've done a good job and it smells amazing. And when the guest opens the door and they can smell that 
cleanness it doesn't smell like bleach i'm not talking bleach here um but i'm talking this fresh aroma of whatever it whatever that may may be but it smells like it's been cleaned and looked after and nurtured and so i agree with you it is a skill and it's a passion it comes from the heart to clean so delicately to a room or to your home is a passion and it's a caring part of of the job um, yeah. because you have to care about the guest that's going to come in you have to care that they're going to not find stains on the sheets you know all these little things and you've got to be careful as well because you're handling and as 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 life has gone on we've got more and more chemicals in our products in the rooms and i understand more recently they've become more plant-based and more environmentally friendly which is amazing but initially in the 80s, this was hardcore products, hardcore products that were going into toilets and, yeah. you know, diet Coke, diet Coke was, was <laughs> something actually. So when I finished actually at the Fleming's Hotel, um, my mother moved to the holiday in Mayfair. And she was the opening housekeeper for the holiday in Mayfair no longer exists. I think they're making it into apartments now. But yeah. back then it was a Cunard hotel that had been bought by Holiday Inn and it was to be their flagship hotel. So it's the Holiday in Mayfair. And my mother was a part of that um, opening. So she was the refurbishment housekeeper. So obviously I left the Flemings and went to work with her at the Holiday in Mayfair. And Holiday Inns, as you probably know, have two double beds in a twin room. They yeah. don't have two single beds. And the Flemings Hotel, as beautiful as it is, it had two tiny single beds in, in twin rooms. So you knew you were changing two single beds. It, it means a lot when you're a housekeeper that all of a sudden you've got two double beds, but you also have the same amount of rooms. So you have 15 rooms still to clean. And because it was Mayfair, because it was a flagship hotel, it was 15 rooms at five star. So you knew this whole new level was was going to be different. And I sensed that very early on. I sensed that even from the levels of the hotels, the star ratings of the hotels, from the Flemings right through to the Holiday Inn, I, I had a, a gorge that, oh, that's that's how you do a stay over at the Flemings. But at the holiday in Mayfair, it's a full on turndown service. It's all of these things that I'd never really heard of or seen before. But housekeeping was the busiest department. And it is, I think, obviously, because I've worked in reception as well, and I've gone on to work on reception, which we'll talk about in a minute. But understanding how receptionists need to communicate the delay in the room not being ready because it hasn't been cleaned on time or to a certain standard became a really important part of how I behaved when I became a receptionist because I used to say to when I was a shift leader or front of house manager I'll say housekeeping and getting the room ready it'll be ready when it's ready whereas a receptionist who'd never worked in housekeeping before would actually say um, where is the room? Where's the room? I need it in five minutes. Not really understanding that the level of detail that goes into turning a room round so quickly, especially when they've got two double beds in them, um, yeah. you know, that that level of um, detail that you need to put into that clean to make sure it meets that standard is so important to someone who generally cares. And most room attendants are really awesome people who 
generally care about their floors. If they have sections in the hotel, that becomes their section. They own it. And they hate when they're off field because then they get another uh, room attendant mucking up their trolley, mucking up their cupboard. And that was something when I worked in the summer holidays, I would be assigned a whole floor and normally the second floor when I was at the holiday in Mayfair. And I would have 15 rooms. Again, little Irish woman and my mother come in with putting more because it wasn't done by an app then it was all done you physically went to the floor and said I need you to do four more rooms but my mother knew she couldn't tell me to do four more rooms so she put them on my list and when I'd come out of one room shut the door and then gone to mark the room off the list to tell the housekeeper to come and check it then I'd see four more on the list and I knew it'd be in her handwriting feels that we could only have been her that put those four rooms on there But I did it because, again, I was earning more money. So I came back to this need to earn more money. And um... and it's also teaching you lessons about graft, right, as well, which you probably, maybe your initial reaction at the time is, oh, God, another four rooms, you know, whatever. But equally, you're motivated at that point to, to put a little bit extra money in your pocket. But you probably don't appreciate just how much that's giving you at that time it feels like it's hard work but actually it's teaching you about hard work it's teaching you that it's important that you don't that you run towards the hard work that you don't avoid it yeah 100 percent. and um it's, it comes to those values doesn't it and the caring of of how you apply yourself at work and yeah so I had really good um, lessons from the peers around me and from the mentors around me as well on on how to deliver excellence and that became really important and so hard work has been fundamentally in, in it bred in me since I was a very very young young girl so um and one I respect and would never change um because I see the I see the rewards from it and it's really important to see the rewards um by the time I was 19 I was working at um the Britannia Hotel in Mayfair which no longer exists as well shows you how old I am really (laughs) none of these hotels are around anymore (laughs) yes London Um, was uh was just a small borough in the southeast of 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 England yeah it was eight boroughs wasn't it or something then you know we didn't have Bromley is it Kent or is it London you know so um so with with working with the Britannia this was part of a wider group so I'd actually cut the apron strings from my mother and um and she she knew everybody as most housekeepers do they have this lovely community together and um she basically got me a job at Britannia Hotel in Mayfair well I'd never seen a hotel like this in my life a holiday in Mayfair is awesome don't get me wrong and so was the Flemings but this this hotel was a wow this was whole new level and which, Dorothy, which is interesting right because yeah Br- Britannia don't have a particularly good name anymore Oh, it's not that Britannia. Ah, good. Right. Okay. <laughs> no, this was an IHG hotel. God, no. Okay, right. I'm glad we clarified that. <laughs> oh, goodness. No, no, no. Wrong, wrong Britannia. Yeah. Um, so um, anyway, so I loved working for them because they were part of IHG hotels. <laughs> just thinking of the Britannia that you're just talking about. Anyway, yeah. so love the IHG hotels and um, they had like development programs and coming back to being this very classic house, well, not a classic housekeeper, actually, just a very um, bland housekeeper, no makeup, flat shoes, just determined to get the rooms turned and, and, 
uh, Dorothy uh, Fennell, who was the exec housekeeper at the Britannia Hotel, she put me in charge of the sixth floor as the housekeeper. So, um, and this was the VIP floor, and this is where very wealthy Middle Eastern clientele would stay. Uh, we had the two penthouses on there as well, and um, they would bring an entourage with them and take the whole floor. And I was the only one allowed to work with their teams um, and to be a part of those teams with two room attendants that would clean the rooms. Uh, checkout was very interesting when those clients checked out. Um, so whole carpets being refurbished and things. So it was it was a very different dynamic to housekeeping than I'd ever experienced. And um, the five star luxury market is intense and rightly so because the clients are paying lots of money for those rooms. Um, but I learned so much in terms of the science of products and they had much more organic ways even then in those uh, later later parts of the 80s of, of cleaning rooms. So that's where the Diet Coke philosophy came was from a lady called Dorothy Fennell, as I said. And uh, the flat Coke from the bars would come to housekeeping and we would put that in toilets. And um, instead of using cleaner. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if you put a copper coin into a glass of Diet Coke and leave it there or any Coke, leave it there for a couple of hours, you'll see how shiny it will come out. Yeah. so um so try it just try it just a bit of science yeah um, i think i mean i think there, there's loads and loads of youtube videos of yeah. exactly that type of thing right just don't put a mental near it i think is the yes, uh, so, is I mean, yes i mean that was never a trick i would try <laughs> but I, I didn't know about until i saw it on tiktok if i'm honest with you yeah um, so um but that was the best experience ever was was working in in that hotel I had the most fun the housekeeping team were again windrush community and a lot of these people still still to this day are my friends and it was just so fun to be exposed to so many different cultures and so many different ways of of being human you know so it was it was pretty awesome and also being colleagues and understanding the dynamics of our, of ourselves within that corporation yeah. but i he also said to me when I was 19, they said, um, we think you could be a receptionist. We're going to do some development programs with you. And I'd studied it at college, as I mentioned, and I was mm, not sure, really not sure. I was very comfortable being a housekeeper, very determined. And um, I don't want to talk to the British public. Thanks very much. No. <laughs> Talking to humans? Why? I do that already. You know, so, but anyway, I just took the opportunity. And this is where it I fell in love with being a receptionist. It was the first time I started really experimenting with makeup, wearing high heel shoes, had to learn all that from, you know, the age of 19 and just really found a niche that was better than housekeeping. And I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that there was something better. But I knew hospitality was in me. I just knew I, I could feel it all around me. I knew it was in my DNA. And so... um by the time I started working as a receptionist, um, I, the role was just awesome. I was suddenly exposed to the British public, American public, Arab public, Middle Eastern clients, loved every second of it, loved learning about them, loved helping them, supporting them, doing um, upselling of rooms. The front of house manager um, always used to rely on me that when I was the shift leader, she would say, right, I want six rooms upgraded today. And a room from a double to a suite is normally a in 
in today's language, it's about £700 upgrade. So you can imagine that back in the 80s. And yeah, so I was very good at upselling from doubles and twins to suites. So and, you know, they had these league tables that said the best sell upseller. And I would always make sure my name was at the top. I was so aggressive, competitive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was just I had to be at the top. I don't know what made that happen. But there's, there's lots of uh, CEO traits uh, being presented here throughout <laughs> your uh, early career, Adele. I, I, yeah, I kind of get that. And it took a long time for me to wake up and realise I had these skills, if I'm honest with you. But it, it was you have to go through these experiences in life to understand where you where you fit where you fit comfortably Um, but I loved being in reception and um, this took me on a whole new route and by the time I was 21 I was the head receptionist at a private gents club and I emphasize private gents club uh, which was a whole new experience from being from such multicultural experiences to go into this very traditional English way British way with um, paneling everywhere oh my goodness smoking rooms cigar smells booze it's just very different experience but it was an experience I knew I had to take Um, what's really interesting as well though is is that you know just reverse back a couple of years and and somebody within the IHG team noticed something in you that at the time you hadn't really given much contemplation for and there's I mean, having spoken to so many people on the show now around that, there's so many instances of when people around you see something in you that you don't necessarily give much credit for yourself. And without these people, who are we? You know, in the end, you know, you can't necessarily get to where you're supposed to get to on your own. You've got to take the advice and, and guidance of people who who maybe see stuff in you that you don't see in yourself. Yeah, 100%. It was actually, I can't remember the lady's name. I can see her face. Um, we were in a develop, uh, in a leadership um, training, and which was always done in the staff training rooms. And it was a great brand to work for. And they they did this development programs for anyone that they saw that would could be a potential leader and you had to apply for it so initially I did apply for it it was Dorothy Fennell my mother's friend saying you need to apply for this Adele and I was like yeah okay I will. I'll, I'll apply for that um so and I did and I started to learn little nuggets of information um about leading teams because also where I was a housekeeper I had to lead a very mature um, room attendant group um, who were all, I was young enough to be their granddaughter and I had to send them back to rooms and that had to become a skill and a way of me articulating that, you know, this hasn't met the standard, you need to go back. And so those little um, sessions that I had with IHG really taught me how to nurture people and to show I was willing to do the job as well. That if I didn't do the job properly, I'd go back and do it myself. Mm. Um, And often if I could see that they were behind on their rooms, I would go up to some of them and say, I'm going to go and do this, but I need you to do this for me. Because there had to be the understanding that it didn't meet the standard, but there was a flexibility in me to show I would help them in another place to get them to meet that standard and that was all lessons I'd learned from my HG hotels in terms of that leadership approach and it really changed my way of thinking from being a 14 year old room attendant to being a housekeeper in charge of a team that had 
very different life lessons to mine, life experiences to mine, and much maturer than me. Culturally, were very different as well. So, and I had to adjust myself. In fact, they took me under their wings. They were all from uh, Jamaica and Bermuda, and they wouldn't let me eat in the staff canteen because they said the food was awful. Um, but they would bring me into the housekeeping uh, on our on the floors. There's a housekeeping cupboard, I suppose, where the linen goes, and they would eat their staff. They would eat their lunches in there and bring their own food and they say you're going to eat with us you're not going to eat that food in the canteen you're going to eat with us and so that's where also I was introduced to different types of foods and and music as well we'd have a little um radio on in or little tape recorder you know the big old big old things coming from the 80s but they had these tiny ones and we would have them in the cupboards and listen to different types of music from the Caribbean which is I suppose a big reason why I love reggae you know so it's just yeah it was awesome I mean that time of my life was the best time of my life from growing up it was just momentous but yeah yeah, private private gents club was it was an eye-opener Phil it was a complete eye-opener was this where you uh chased dust with a pair of scissors oh yes (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's a line I never thought I'd ever say on uh ever Actually, not just on this show, but yeah, that's... Um, well, to be fair, I didn't start that. I'm just saying, I didn't start that. Yeah. So it was... Gents clubs are very different pressures. And on a Sunday evening, it was a graveyard shift. And the front of house manager, who was then the front of house manager before I became, she put two of us on this graveyard shift. And there was a lady called Kirsten who was on... 12 until 8 and I was on 3 until 11 the sun was beaming through this this bay window Phil and we were sat there really bored and there was no check-ins we'd cleaned the reception desk and she several, just got... several billion times oh my goodness honestly it there wood on there that panel wood all on the walls looked amazing we just made it shine and long and short, long story short is um, she saw this beam of dust coming through with this sun and it was bouncing off the reception area. And she got a bit annoyed with the dust because we just dusted. So she then got this pair of scissors and she, in her wisdom, thought, actually, you see these big pieces of dust here that are coming in. I'm going to cut them in half. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was look, I was looking at her from the other side of the desk thinking what is she doing because all I could see was this woman doing this in the air so and she then explained her rationale and then she said come come do it with me so both of us were stood there running around again getting really competitive starting to chase around this dust and there were two members who were staying in the club that evening they're at the top of the stairs and they're looking down at these two crazy receptionists <laughs> running around chasing dust with a pair of scissors looking like lunatics sorry to interrupt but a quick word to give special mention to our sponsor rotacloud without whom this podcast wouldn't even be possible with thousands of customers worldwide rotacloud is already saving businesses like yours hundreds of hours of staffing related admin every year it's been described by its users as everything from a lifesaver to an absolute no-brainer with one customer even saying that they'd rather stick forks in their eyes than go back to doing their rotas the old-fashioned way. If you're ready to take the pain out of people management, I highly recommend heading over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to sign up for your free 30-day trial and see how Rotacloud can benefit your business. Now let's get back to it. Yeah, 
We must have, I mean, if, if ever there was anything to highlight just how bored you must have been. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. My husband calls it chasing flies, you know, so. <laughs> so yeah. I remember it, it reminds me of um, doing reception shifts on a cruise ship, kind of that last hour shift of 10 till 11 o'clock at night when on a, a, a P&O adult only ship, which is not the adult only that you might be thinking in your head. Generally speaking, everybody was in bed by 10.30. So you would have a situation whereby there was literally nothing going on. And we'd always, there'd always just be one one person there. And I remember I always used to, to try and swap shifts with people because I was very much a morning person in any case. But um, some of the things that I, I used to do to, Try and I used to fig, trying to figure out what the tipping point of my chair was, you know, the like and tip the chair and then actually take it too far and and follow and then somebody would walk past just at that moment, you know, and you go, Phil, what are you doing? Um, but yeah, it's a. I think it, you you need an imagination to fill boredom time, don't you? You most definitely do. You most definitely do. And what was ironic uh, talking to you about this is that Kirsten was actually from Scotland. Oh, really? <laughs> so she was she was absolutely um, a, a bag of energy to work with. And on days like that, you needed a Kirsten in your life. That's for sure. So feeling running around with a pair of scissors chasing dust. And what these two members must have thought they must have thought. Yeah, is Londoners. It's got to be Londoners. It's got to be something <laughs> about the air here. It's got to be something. Yeah. So, but I loved it, and the club really invested in me again. So you probably don't. You probably are aware, but there's D32, D33 Assessor and Advanced Assessor Awards, which are done for NBQs. And I was training because when I became the front of house manager there, I was there for eight years. And uh, when I became the front of house manager, the girls that I was employing, I was training them. And so the, the, the operations director, I can't remember what his title was. He basically said, oh, you should do your D32, D33. And so they invested in that. And that's when I became exposed to developing the next generational receptionist. Um, And they also got me doing that with the housekeepers in the club. And so I really enjoyed that development piece and assessing people to the MBQ standard. And then I could see myself really, really getting into it. In fact, I started looking forward to just opening up one of the receptionist MVQ portfolios and signing off some of their units. And I got this energy again, another piece of energy, something I'd never thought of in my life. I didn't even know what an MVQ was. Yeah. It was when I was at college, I did a BTEC equivalent. So this to me was a new way of of uh, educating someone and training them and, and passing on my knowledge. So this D32, D33, I qualified relatively quickly and um, I could have stayed at the club for years and years and years, but this really excited me. And the mm. the gentleman who owned that business, he got one of his, because they could see all of a sudden that the NBQs were being passed in this one club and who was doing it. And so the company came to me and offered me a full-time job as an NBQ assessor. So... And that's where I knew I had to take that leap of faith. Um, so, and I did. Um, within 18 months of being an MVQ assessor, I must have taken about 150 people through a reception MVQ. 
But this company also did apprenticeships in their old guys. And so I started working with them on their apprenticeship landscape as well. And so it was a really exciting opportunity for me to be involved in this type of arena, this education world. And I loved giving back to that next generation. And I'd never really thought of something around generational uh, impact and what differences are between generations and without being too focused on it. But it became a big part of how I was developing the next generation. And what also happened during this time was I became a mum. And so therefore, I could feel myself needing the flexibilities, which if we're really honest, the sector in the 80s, early 90s, wouldn't have been so flexible towards yeah. me being being a mum. Um, it's changed considerably now, but at massively, those times, yeah. Yeah, at those times it wasn't a thing. Um, you know, uh, it was very, very dominated by old school theories and leadership. But because I was a mum, I, I then became this person that wanted to put everything into my son and to making sure my son was thriving. And uh, at what it, age did you get him into the housekeeping department? Oh, well, he was cleaning rooms by the age of 18 months. <laughs> you know, he was he was changing himself as well. It was a very, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, you have to teach them early. Um, yeah. well, you, so, when he uh, wasn't doing it properly, we getting them to do, go back and do it again. I was going with the white glove. I was doing yeah. the whole scenario. He knew it all, honestly. Bless him, bless him. Um, so... But because the apprenticeship world could give me those flexibilities, Phil, um, around being a mum, because I was a full-time mum first, and then I was an employee second, um, Mm. but I was still a full-time employee. So I was able to have this work-life balance, and I was really fortunate to have landed this post. I always feel the universe gives you your destination, and that was definitely the right one for me at that moment in time. And I worked with them until 2005, 2006, and then I was approached by a gentleman of a large national training company. He was starting again, and he asked if I'd like to join a group of colleagues that were working for this particular training provider to start a large national training provider. So I was also offered another opportunity, which I don't want to say in hindsight would have taken, but it's it's one of those things with sliding doors, which avenue do you take? You know, which way do you go? And I went with comfort. I went with a group of people who are awesome at what they did, but I could have done something different, very similar, but Umbrella could have been formed six years earlier than it was. I, I remember in your notes, you, you had said that the, this is possibly one of your, your biggest regrets, but I think we've probably all had moments like that. I certainly uh, look back at, at times of my career, and this would be uh, definitely a life lesson for anybody who cared to hear it, to take on board, is, is that Probably in my mid thirties, I I chased the money and the comfort that that came with that. I I could have made different decisions that would have probably taken me on a, a very different path. Maybe gotten me to where what I'm doing now a lot quicker. Who knows? But you can't, I suppose, look back with mountains of regret because you know, look what you're doing now. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's. I mean, I do, like I said, the universe will get put you on the right track. And I do feel that the choice I made was the right one. But the biggest regret I had was perhaps 
not exploring more and having confidence in myself because this would have been a whole new opportunity and umbrella I don't think it'd actually be in a different place if I'm honest with you if I had taken that road but it it the the experiences I had albeit positive and there were experiences that taught me lots of lessons I I don't know that it's you know sometimes you just got to take the risk and I never I went with comfort I went with the easier path Mm. but then I was secure but then I was secure for six years and as I said I had some valuable lessons in life and um, it's brought me to 2012 where Umbrella was incorporated and my husband and I were in a wine bar in Rochester. Uh, again, it's closed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's closed. It's, and all of, it's all your fault then, all of these places that have... Um, yeah. <laughs> Adele's no longer drinking here, so we can't function without her. <laughs> Wow, wow, what a power that would be, eh? <laughs> um, so, but, it, yeah, so it's called the Singapore, Singapore Lounge. It's where we live in Medway and in Rochester. And we, my husband just sat there and we've been married 25 years. And he said to me, explain to me what it is you do again. <laughs> I was like, oh, I do this, uh, it's all under one umbrella. And he was like, so you're going to call your next company. You're going to do this. That opportunity that you had with Chris, you're going to do it now. And he said, let's do this. And so over two bottles of wine, which they always recommend you never start a business over wine. But I did. And Umbrella was incorporated. And then by the February, I had my first contracts because I was subcontracting at that point. And we just took it from there. I have a lot of connections in the sector that like me and I like them. And it's it's about using those connections to advantage your position as well as theirs. Yeah. And so it's a partnership. And so and That's the key word, isn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. And I believe in that. I believe that. We had a great business relations director at Umbrella who really taught me the uh, the values of business relations. And because he'd worked for a charity before and he came into Umbrella and where we were a commercial business, he made us understand that to nurture the client the way that he had done was the way that you would actually retain business um, because being in a commercial environment and this conveyor belt of clients is a very different way to how he perceived those relations. So that yeah. was again, a massive lesson learned. And again, people come into your life for a reason. Yeah. It's exactly the same principle within recruitment as well. You know, um, I would much prefer to work with a, a small bank of people who all we all get each other and we all respect each other's work and we all uh, are inquisitive about the what it is that everybody does in that process and you know that's the thing that gives longevity if you're focused on the transactional element of of business then that that has a very limited shelf life 100 percent, i couldn't agree more and it's it's those little nuggets of wisdom that come your way don't they from people and experiences and you know certainly when we had uh, this business relations director he certainly taught us that in a big way in a very big way in fact that legacy is still within umbrella because it's an important legacy to leave and and it it comes back to how we see ourselves 10 years on. So we see ourselves as a meaningful apprenticeship and training provider. 
and we live by those values every day the team the the leadership team we have are just phenomenal the new data guy we have is a really complex job and he education skills funding agency rules are highly complex highly yeah this even when you say it out loud it sounds complex You know, and when you read the funding rules, it's something like 300 pages. He notes every single paragraph of those funding right, rules. And yeah, that's yeah. what you need with the data guy, right? You need them For to sure. know that stuff. Um, I, do you think, I think they, do they do they make it complicated, do you think, so that people just go get into page five and go, do you know what? I'm not doing this. Do you know, it's a really interesting concept because I never forget when the landscape of friendships changed in 2017. The minister at the time said, you're going to have balls of steel to work in apprenticeships. And I thought, actually, he's not wrong. Because by the time you read those funding rules, and by the time you've got to jump through all the hoops just to prove a learner is eligible, you know, you're just like, what's the point? What's the point? You know, no, they don't have a blue nose. So they're not eligible. You know, so there's really silly funding rules that stop people being able to be developed. And, you know, Friendship starts have gone down considerably since the pandemic, especially in our sector. Um, across all sectors, it's around 6% drop in apprenticeship starts. But then if the funding rules are so complex and bureaucratical, it's just going to stop people doing it. Yeah. Um, being an apprenticeship provider is no easy feat, but it's taxpayers' money. Let's put it on the, the shoe on the other foot. And therefore, we should be accountable for making sure it's spent on the right things. Mm. So I completely support the rationalisation behind it. And I'm in line and in tune with that. But let's not be silly. Yeah. So there's lots of people who need developing who could do an apprenticeship if the rules were just to be a little bit more flexed on that. So I understand why it is the way it is. Obviously, I have to understand it. We run a business in it. But it comes back to where we have new apprenticeship standards and we have old measuring tools. So you can't measure apples and pears in the same way. Mm. And that's what's still happening to this day. But there is transition, there is change, there is evolution, there is consultations taking place. So let's hope and pray that eventually it comes to a sensible place for the measurement of apprenticeship training providers not just apprenticeship colleges schools you know there needs to be consideration to how this generation learn and how we as educators have to adjust ourselves to those young people or to adults because apprenticeships are not just for 16 to 18 year olds they're for anybody up to the age of 65 so in fact older doesn't even stop at 65 if you have new learning you have new learning yeah, well, that's that's the thing as well, right? I mean, with the uh, laws that are in place, you you can't demand that somebody retires. You know, that's got to come from the individual. So, if that individual wants to carry on working, because maybe that's the thing that keeps them going, or you know, I have a I've got a mate uh, who's a financial controller in a business. He's uh, well into his late sixties, but he's you know he's single. Uh, his kids have flown the nest. They're on the other side of the planet. Um, it's actually the the getting up and going in and doing his job that you know actually he loves the most. Yeah. Um, so oh. why deprive of that if if that's the thing that he loves? Yeah, the empty nest syndrome affects men as much as it does women, and it's a big shell shock when you've been so focused on your young people all their lives until they leave and go and fly the nest, which is what you want them to do. That's what ultimately is the aim of parenting: is mm. that you 
you get them to be decent, lovely human beings that know the right and the wrongs and can make a living for themselves. And the moment they leave leave home, it becomes a very different ball game. My daughter went to uni in September last year and I was heartbroken for three months absolutely heartbroken Um, you know she's my best buddy as well so um it was just uh, luckily I had had my injection of her last weekend but that emptiness syndrome can really wobble you so I agree with your colleague I will be working until I don't know probably you put me in a box you know because I just can't see my life not working because I've been working from such a young age even when I'm on holiday I'm curious I have to have a little nose in what's going in you know so but that's I think that's it's hard to stop well it's also it's a societal pressure isn't it that the fact that you know this is that's you you go to school you get an education you get a, a job you pay in through your working life you retire at 67 now is it for men and 65 for ladies I, I actually have got no idea Same. anymore Same. and then you know you enjoy your retirement and that's that's the perceived life but in actual fact I've had so many conversations with uh, people outside of industry business leaders and all of that sort of thing I suppose is if you find the thing that you really really love to do I know it's a cliche around you know you'll never work a day in your life that's actually that is the secret like yeah. it's find the thing that makes you tick and then that age as you approach retirement, it's not going to be about sitting around and, you know, getting into your routine of getting the paper and having a coffee in the morning, going for a croissant down the local, whatever it is that you you do in your retirement. I'm not suggesting that you don't have days like that, but when you've got the the joy in your life through the work that you do, then why stop? Completely agree. Completely agree. Friendships and training the next generation of hospitality professionals is is in our DNA at Umbrella. And um, I can't see myself doing something else. Just can't. <laughs> Just can't. Yeah. Not, not right here, right now, anyway. So we, we have the most amazing team as well. Uh, incredibly proud of all of them and what they bring to the table. Like I said, it's, it's you learn from everybody around you all the time, 100% of the time. So, and we're really fortunate to have just awesome people, just pretty awesome humans working for us. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, everything's possible when you've got great humans. When you've got great humans. I love humans. Love great humans. <laughs> yeah. Love great humans. Uh, who doesn't? So. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk about the, the positive side of apprenticeships. Some, if anybody's listening to this and, and kind of wondering what the hell we're talking about, yeah. kind of just, uh, I, I summarise, I suppose, what an apprenticeship is, the, the benefit it can bring to a business, Uh, or an individual yeah off you go right so what is an apprenticeship it is a training program basically um that is up to 12 or 18 months um it can be for three years as well so they range from level two right through to level seven um for hospitality there are about nine standards ranging from hospitality team member which is a first-time entrant into the hospitality sector all the way up to an ops manager, the departmental manager, which is a level five, and that's equivalent to a foundation degree. The level four is also equivalent to a foundation degree, and that's a hospitality manager. And then we've got hospitality supervisor. That's a hospitality side. The culinary side is commie chef, 
chef de partie and senior production uh, senior culinary chef and then we also have the production chef which is a production chef at level two senior production chef at level three so there's lots of opportunities for people to join an apprenticeship you can use them for new first-time entrants which is that traditional route however apprenticeships can also be used for upskilling your current workforce so let's say for example we're recognizing in the sector that lots of people are promoting someone very quickly for retention strategy but they don't necessarily have the skills to supervise or to manage so that's where you could actually utilize an apprenticeship on a year-long program where you could take them through all the theories and all the teachings needed for them to be an effective supervisor in your business so the beauty of apprenticeships is that for a business there's lots of data out there that ranges from 79% retention all the way up to 90% retention retention it depends on which piece of research you read from a sectoral point of view on average it's about 72% retention and who doesn't want that right now who doesn't yeah. want those retention figures absolutely so that's an, a golden nugget for people who are listening is they are really supportive of of all key people strategies so the most moment you would do with umbrella we get you to do an organizational development need we would look at what you need as a business and what's the best way to get that implemented apprenticeships are great um, for those long-term plans but for short-term plans there's also um, short bite-sized courses that in london we have funded but nationally we have them available on a commercial shelf so you can drop them off and pop them into a box somewhere and you can buy them and then you'll get someone of our team delivering those so they're, they're really effective in terms of keeping someone going through that novice to expert journey so if we come back to even the fact you could actually say what I did from the age of 14 right up to the age of 18 was a form of apprenticeship because it was a career it formed a career mm. and it started me as a cleaning rooms and then those le- lessons I learned I had a mentor along the way mentors along the way and then I also um, then qualified and then I was able to then take my career in the same sector but on a on a whole new different pathway because as you you identified Phil people if they can spot talent they should pick it up quickly and apprenticeships can do that for you if you see someone that you really want to keep in the business and you really feel you can nurture them which we're very good at doing in our sector then put them on an apprenticeship program with others that can learn and therefore you get that peer-to-peer learning as well so they are the pinnacle of what should be the future in my belief i would say that i own an apprenticeship training company yeah yeah but this is free training let's come back to how it's funded so there are levy there's a levy account so some employers pay into an apprenticeship levy it's 0.5% of their pay bill on anything that's over 3 million and there are smaller employers who now have access to the same service but where they can either pay 5% of the apprenticeship standard and 95% government pays or they can actually ask for a levy transfer from a gifting employer who will never spend all of their levy. So you've got the likes of Google, Tesco out there, even Sodexo in our own sector, Compass, 
all very, very good at sharing their levy pot because they're never going to spend that level of levy contribution within their own workforce. You'd have to have every employee as an apprentice. And then yeah. if you come back to the eligibility piece of apprenticeships, that would be really hard to do. Therefore, a small business can have access to this levy pot and they they just need to work with a really good training provider to help them access access that the devolved uh, mayor um, regions and and counties they have unspent levy fund pots as well so um, whilst umbrella is national if you want to work with a local college um, to you to do something in in whatever apprenticeship it is then basically you can actually access those pots through the mayor's office or through your local chambers of commerce so there's lots of ways that businesses can get it funded and it's free funding for a development program that is going to keep people in your business the only thing you have to pay is their wage and you have to obviously treat them very nicely um, yeah. so, well that goes know, without saying yeah, well, at least it should but, yes it should yeah um, so, yeah so it's it's a very simple program as long as you're working with the right provider right college right tra- whoever they are that you choose and as long as it's implemented effectively and as long as the employer understands that person is an apprentice they're an apprentice they're not going to be cashing up in three weeks they're not going to be running a full section in the kitchen in three weeks they're an apprentice give them the time to learn and develop and you will have yourself the best colleague ever and the best employee ever if you give them breathing space so and if you allow them the time to develop and spend time with their training provider there is a 20 percent off the job requirement which has to be paid and the way umbrella works with that is what we call a 70 20 10 model which is known in most lnd teams which is 70 percent on the job training then there's 20 percent with their mentor in the workplace and 10 percent in online sessions and and you know kind of classroom environments uh for the kitchens we have in in islington we have a kitchen where our chefs come uh, once a month and they go along a pathway so the whole thing is relatively straightforward it's very very simple as long as you're talking to people who make it simple for you Mm. Um, and obviously I'm going to say umbrella makes it simple so yeah yeah well that you know you kind of put your money where your mouth is though for you know you've been doing this for quite some time now you've as you said you've got a, a pretty pronounced client list who you've been working with for years so um you know it, it's not you're not paying lip service to it at all i think you know you've definitely earned the right to say that that you guys can absolutely support yeah 100 percent. and it's it i mean it depends how you measure a provider you know so and if you measure the provider by how well they communicate with you then fine but also look at the destination of your learners look at how long they're staying in your business is your environment empathetic enough to have someone in the business that you can nurture if you have that in your business you can have the most amazing apprenticeship programs and we've got amazing employers who have amazing apprenticeship programs i'm going to elevate one i know i shouldn't but the pigs and limewood uh, group 
wow, do those guys know how to take an apprenticeship programme very seriously? So very, very, very proud to be their apprenticeship provider. Um, but most certainly they are the example of what a good apprenticeship programme is. It ticks, ticks all the boxes, Phil. It's got corporate social responsibility. It's got environmental factors. It's got sustainability. It's got everything from how they teach. And their, their chef down there, James... Golding. Yes, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. What a phenomenal mentor. What a phenomenal mentor. So With, they a, have, with an amazing moustache. Oh, amazing moustache. And I think, <laughs> yeah, so, but the, what he does for the apprentices, and they get them involved in the, the, the smoke and uh, smoke and, um, God, I, I'm going to really beat myself up now. I can't remember it. It's these big events um, that they have with Angela Hartnett and James gets the apprentice tent up. And so the apprentice, apprentices are actually involved in this big smoke concert that they have down at the pigs. Um, so honestly, the experience they have, just and that whole uh, farm to fork philosophy is true to that hotel group it's all organic it's all from a 25 mile radius so they have it right they mm. absolutely have it right but then there are others as well in the city and in in the, in the core of london that also do sterling jobs with their apprenticeship programs and they have real development programs so they have them at first time entrance all the way up to degree programs. So because they're capturing every level of their business and making sure that the retention is throughout, not just at one central place. Yeah. So it's about working with your training provider and getting that model right for your business. Even if you're a tiny business, it can really work magic for your business. Yeah. And I think that the other great thing that's, I don't know if this has always been the case, but certainly post COVID, it's felt like you know, you've just highlighted the the pig as a great provider in that regard. I would imagine if somebody's listening to this and going, right, how can I implement this in my business? I'd imagine if they went to somebody in the pig, they'd talk to them freely about how to do it um, and and the benefits that it's had to them uh, and what they're seeing now by, by uh, kind of jumping on that. And that's the great thing about where we're at now is that there's this willingness to share, this willingness, because frankly, we need more people in in the industry and you know if we can all help each other up on that platform a little bit then you know everybody's kind of jumping on board with that yeah I mean I loved what Kate Nichols said is that as you rise bring people with you and you know that's a lovely expression not just for females but for all humans and where you've got great mentors in a workplace use that philosophy it's really important that we understand that we've got people we need people we are Mm. a people sector we did this big thing at skills london last year and we had the biggest hospitality uh, zone and we worked with uh, business london and the gla to create this zone we also did a white paper which showed uh, which went across sorry to 2000 young people and they're all gen z yeah so and they all came back saying hospitality i think was 11% of people would only consider hospitality no surprising uh, results in terms of that gamification and social media was at the top. So when we looked at this, we said, how do we want Skills London to look then? Because if we think post-pandemic perception of hospitality, we need to have gamification right through our sector. Now, we already seen lots of automation coming into the sector. So this, to me, was an ideal opportunity. And our creative lead and her contacts, they created four games 
that were 8-bit games. One is called Hotel Hijinks, uh, Catra Chaos, Pub Panic, and Way to Wolves. And these four games are 30 seconds each, come back to the attention span of a Gen Z. Um, and it was the most attended stand. And really? Right. Because, and it was a hospitality zone. It wasn't... Yeah. But as if to kind of cement the point about gamification being, uh, you know, quite important in in the learning process. A hundred percent. We had, I mean, we stood right at the doors because we had the jazz handers of hospitality there. We had 12, 15 brands that were all sponsoring this stand in partnership with Umbrella. And we did this training session with them beforehand that said, you've got to stand at the door. And when they come in, you've got to point them to our technology dome. Now, no one's going to think technology dome hospitality of that age. So we it was the element of surprise. So reversing this thought that hospitality is at the bottom, but gamification is at the top, we're going to bring you hospitality in the language you speak. So therefore, we had the jazz handers, the big personalities, all at the front door saying, oh, go and play games in the technology dome. There was British Airways at the front there, Phil. <laughs> Yeah. And they were absolutely mortified because they had the stand at the front to capture those kids. They didn't expect to have a whole load of hospitality, overly passionate hospitality people at the front, grabbing these kids and their school teachers to come to our technology dome. And it was this huge, giant dome, absolutely huge. And we had these giant eye tabs in them and you could play four games, but then we had roaming tablets around. So if we couldn't get them into the dome, they could play on the tablets. And this whole community of hospitality competitors as well, they all came together for the sake of hospitality to promote to the next generation that this is an amazing sector to work for. Um, And then we had, because obviously vanity is a big piece for this generation, we had a selfie, a 360 degree selfie camera thing go around. Um, I can't remember what you call it. The team. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I've seen it. Yeah. yeah, and they loved that. And we gave them emojis of a chef's hat or of a pint of beer or, you know, something that they could pick up and see themselves as a chef or see themselves with a pint. Maybe not so great with kids, but it had a point to go with the game. And then there was also a serving tray as well. And they went, this camera would go around. It, and so anyway, long story short, Business London told us it was the busiest stand and it was the most favourite stand by right. these young people. That's a hospitality zone that literally we just changed it up. We didn't have bed making. We didn't have pulling pints. We didn't have those old school ways of thinking. We had this modern way of engaging. We had 700 young people sign on to our distribution list for more information. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, proving the point, right? Yes. You've yeah. got to, we, we can't expect a, a generation to fit into us. We've got to come to the party as well as, uh, you know, what's going to actually entice these guys to come and give it a go. Yeah. And if you can show them, the games are not misleading. There was someone who said to me, it's slightly misleading because the practicalities of the job. I said, you can teach that when they join. I said, the biggest thing is they see it's fast and fun because the games are fast and fun. So they literally speed up. We had the uh, deputy mayor of London come to our stand and play one of the games. Poor guy. I mean, on the screen, he was like just trying to expand it. And uh, he was stuck with me. You didn't understand it either. So between the pair of us, these two 50 plus people playing on a screen. But we got there in the end and we were able to get the the trolley to move and um, eventually said, I really enjoyed that. I'm glad you did. Thank you. So did I actually. So it ended up being a really fun 
time just for us mature adults and because it was near Christmas as well. So the team of hospitality, that's what I'm going to call them. As I said, it was these amazing brands in London all came together. On the Saturday, it's a very different vibe. On the Friday, you have the schools mandated to come. So you normally have about 16 to 30,000 people turning up. On the Saturday, it's not mandated, so therefore you have the parents coming with their with their children with their CVs, and because some of the brands that sponsored it, they're really high end brands, world well known brands, that they bought their CVs to meet those brands. They come in suits, and you're like, oh my god, this is so amazing, um, and we had a lot of young people come saying, I want to be a chef. How can I be a chef? You know, so it and this was because of the energy of that community we had around us and just mm. bringing hospitality to show how fun it was. And there was a couple of them. I'll name the hotel Strand Palace, uh, Jenny and her team, and started singing Christmas carols around the 360 degree booth, mortifying these young kids. You know, it's like mum and dad dancing on the dance floor. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it was literally, it was awesome. And the feedback to get that feedback that it was the most loved and attended stand just made my day, made my life actually. Um, Because it shows that the thinking behind that kind of, well, hang on, you're telling us you like gamification and social media. So we're going to show you the sector in in this way. Um, Because let's face it, it is a fun sector and you make lifelong friends in this sector. For sure. Absolutely. And that's uh, actually leads me nicely onto the, I, I suppose, I mean, it'll have to be the final question, really. Look at the time. I know. Um, <laughs> um, didn't we? We said we could chat all day. Indeed, absolutely. Well, we were chatting even before we turned the microphone on, so so there we are. Yes. Um, what would be, I mean, you kind of mentioned one there, but what would be your top three reasons why somebody should join hospitality? Top three is most definitely, if you're willing to work hard, it will give you a career for life, and I'm proof of that. It's also about the fact it's a misconception that you can't earn in this sector. You can earn in this sector. Absolutely. Um, and you can earn a really good salary and have a really good position in life if that's what you want. But also the development programs that are there to support you, um, especially for those that don't go to uni. Um, there's lots of opportunities in this sector that if you're willing to work hard, it will give you it will give you a, an abundance of whatever it is you need. It gives you a community of friends. It gives you um, and sometimes lifelong friends. It gives you a really great work life balance, uh, in particularly now where things have changed so much. And as I said, it gives you opportunity that potentially you won't get in other sectors so yeah. so many things this i could cite so many things but those would be the three key things yeah brilliant well i mean if if people are listening to this and want to learn more about apprenticeships or anything else that you you provide uh, as well what's the best method for them to to reach out to you to do that so LinkedIn is normally really good. Um, I have an open page on there purposely so people can contact me. I don't have any private fi- filters on or whatever it is they do so you can restrict. Um, Umbrella Training is on LinkedIn as well, also on all the socials. Um, if not, then uh, website is www.umbrellatraining.co.uk. Um, always been updated by a fabulous team so lots of opportunities on there as well for open and closed cohorts as we call them so and lots of new stuff coming on uh, with the new programs that we're going to be running for um, chefs with empathy 
and winning women in hospitality. So there's lots of stuff coming up that is really exciting. So to keep an eye on the website for that and our socials. Fantastic. So everywhere, basically. Everywhere. We, yeah. it, was, it was so funny. Someone said to me, I feel like I see you every day. I was like, oh, no, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, um, I know. I, I still have uh, massive imposter syndrome with that. When I, uh, you know, I, I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and in other places with regards to the podcast and other kind of just general stuff that pops into my head. And the amount of times I, I take a phone call from somebody, and go, God, you're everywhere, Phil. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a part of me goes, well, that's great. And then there's a part of me goes, right, is that is it too much? Like, am I am I annoying people now? Is is that what it is? But uh, in any case, we're trying to do something good, so I'm going to stick to it. Yeah, same, same. As long as it's positive messaging, what's the harm? Yeah, absolutely. Adele, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm sure we could have filled seven podcasts if we'd uh, really wanted to, but um, I uh, I wish you guys all the very best for the the next phase forward and. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take care. And there we have it. A huge thank you to Adele for sharing her story and what a cracker it was. We'll be back next week with one of the most epic stories I've ever covered with one of the nicest guests I've ever had. You absolutely will not want to miss that. I'll see you then.